After about a month, it's about time we finally get to the second half of the story of the fall of the Bronze Age on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. I'm your host, Dave Militello, and for more information, you can check out our website, deliciousHistoryPodcast.com, as well as our social media on Facebook and Instagram, both at Delicious History Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, we do have a Patreon, and you can find us at patreon.com slash delicioushistory. Well, it sure has been a minute, hasn't it? I thought I'd be back on the air early December, but here we are mid-late December. But hey, we're back. It's a Festivus miracle. But I'm not coming here empty-handed. I do have a very special guest for us today. Your friend and mine, Mr. Wes Jones. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to be here. Well, it's our pleasure. Now, uh, just so you know a little bit about Wes, a few things. First of all, he is a, I guess you call him a technologist. He knows quite a bit about technology. It's his line of work. Also, um, he lived in China, speaks uh, Mandarin fluently. I'm also imagining some other dialects as well. A dabble. A dabble. Dabble. A dabble ado. And uh, he's here also to help me with my pronunciations because anything east of Ukraine, I probably can't pronounce any of those words and I apologize greatly for that. And so I have taken steps to remedy the problem. And these steps are in Mr. West Jones. Yes, I'm happy to be here as your resident China and technology expert. I am not here for the food component of your show. Um, As you know, I have many issues with lots of food. And um, if you have any kind of podcast about broccoli, eggplant, gluten, it will probably kill me. Eggplant? No, that's, that's a new one. Yeah. Wow. It's a sad life. I don't know how you survive. I would literally just like walk off a bridge if I were you. <laughs> Thanks for adding some festivist cheer to this episode. <laughs> it's the reason for the season. <laughs> but anyway, so let's let's get into the story now. To understand really what happened during the Bronze Age during its fall, we need to understand one city in particular, Ugarit, which is located in a port in modern-day Assyria. The reason for this is because Ugrit really embodies what was going on during the time of the fall. It was a prosperous port city that was trading just about everything by this point. Copper, tin, or the finished bronze, which was a combination of the two, as well as large amounts of foodstuffs that were being traded throughout the city every day. Eventually, it also started to trade other products like clothing, tools, weapons, and just about everything else you can imagine, since this was the height of the interconnection of the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, that that sounds like a really important city, but I've never heard of Ugarit. What happened to it? Well, there's actually a very good reason why you've probably never heard of Ugarit, because the city doesn't exist anymore, and neither does the civilization that called it its capital. So why was that? Well, we get a clue based on one of the only pieces of written evidence that survived to this day. This letter was written by the last king of Ugarit, known as Amurabi, or some called him Hammurabi. In this chilling letter, he wrote a bit about what was going on at the time. In fact, Wes, would you like to read that for me? Sure. Yeah, I have that here. It says, 
My father, behold, the enemy's ships came here. My cities were burned, and they did evil things in my country. Does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of Hatti, and all my ships are in the land of Luca? Thus the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it. The seven ships of the enemy that came here inflicted much damage upon us. You know, what's really strange about reading this letter today is that it was never sent. It was found in an unsent form. Before it was able to travel to its intended recipient, the city had apparently been burned to the ground and filled with foreign arrows. The fact that this letter made it to the modern day is in and of itself a small miracle. This brings us to the first and probably most important theory when it comes to the fall of the Bronze Age, the Sea People. In fact, when I was talking about this episode with other people on a trip, because that's what I do, this was the first thing that people brought up. So it's worth taking a moment for us to talk about them and really what they were all about. Much like a lot of the issues going on at the time, we know very little about who these sea people were. From reports that we hear from the few surviving records, they appear to be hordes of violent warriors that just showed up on your shore one day and started destroying and looting. Most of the areas where the sea people reached didn't survive their assaults, though there were a few exceptions. The most notable exception would be that of the Egyptians, who are basically going to be exceptions to everything we're talking about on this episode today. As far as their identity, no one really knows for sure who the Sea People were, though there are plenty of theories out there. So let's talk about some of these major theories as to who they were and who they might have been. The first and most common theory is that they were marauders from outside of the economic sphere of the Eastern Mediterranean Bronze Age societies. These were people who basically were trying to make that coin without really being part of the system itself. There were some names that were mentioned in the few records as far as where some of these people may have come from, but the problem is that there weren't really any names that we're familiar with. So this might mean that they came from other areas of the Mediterranean and and Europe that at the time used different names than what we would be familiar with. For example, some have said that some of these groups of people may have come as far away from modern-day Sicily and Spain or even Germany. There's even some people out there who say that they may have gotten their hands on iron technology, which is more advanced than bronze technology, and decided to use that technology to take over the wealthier nations of the Eastern Mediterranean. It's actually been disproven based on carbon dating and other sorts of dating technologies that show that there was no significant amounts of iron weaponry at that time. Oh, dating technologies, huh? You mean like Tinder? Oh, uh, sure. Another thing to consider is that the Sea People were actually an internal group or groups. For example, one of the more common ideas is that the Sea Peoples were actually what would later become known as the Philistines and the Levant. Other theories of internal Sea People included those of unpaid mercenaries that decided to get what they felt was owed to them, or just people revolting against their own governments. Either way, what we do know is that absolutely no one was unaffected by them, and I guess you could say that nobody really defeated them. Well, now wait a minute. I thought you said that the Egyptians were the exception to all of this. Uh, Yes and no. I mean, that's a very good point. What happened at the time was that if you look at the only real records of this by the Egyptians, there was Pharaoh Ramses II who said that these people came to his shore, they wanted to do harm to his kingdom, but he showed them who his boss, and he destroyed them and threw all of their belongings into the sea. The problem is that Egyptians, especially during this time, were known for really writing propaganda when it came to history. And the historical records show this and nothing else, but the archaeological evidence showed that basically the sea people came, 
fought valiantly, took what they wanted, and left. So it wasn't so much that the Egyptians defeated them, as so much they survived them, which was unique. But again, there was really no answer to this question of who the sea people were for sure. But one thing that's interesting to note is that even though they oftentimes are represented as being Viking-like raiders, some people talk about them bringing their families with them and carts of personal belongings. Based on that, some, if not most, of these sea people may actually have been refugees from other parts of the Mediterranean looking for a new start. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting theory because when you say sea people and the way you described it initially, I immediately think of Viking raiders. But now you're describing them more like refugees. That's a completely different view of who these people were. Absolutely. And so let's talk about some of the other things that were going around this part of the world that might explain why this might be a refugee situation compared to just a Viking one. One of the things that we're only now starting to get an understanding of is what was really going on geologically at the time. There appears to be strong evidence towards something really bad happening in that area of the world that could have affected the climate. Something to note is that food was being transported from place to place, as is common when you have growing cities. As we mentioned in part one of this episode, fewer and fewer people, percentage-wise, were being involved in agriculture, and were instead moving to more populated areas, such as cities, to take on different tasks, such as being full-time soldiers, artisans, scribes, etc., and were no longer just farmers, like they may have been a generation or two earlier. Part of this was because Bronze Age technology led to advancements in farming that led to more efficient crop yields, and therefore less people needed to work the fields themselves. But in many cities, even that wasn't enough to feed the rising urban population and vast amounts of food, typically grains and oil, then needed to be imported. With the idea of some sort of climate change taking place due to a natural disaster, it seems as though agriculture across the Mediterranean was in a tailspin. And not only could people no longer afford to export excess food, but they weren't even able to feed their own populations. Another thing to consider was the fact that agriculture was taking place on such a large scale that people who typically didn't have an understanding of soil health and nutrients were slowly starting to strip their lands of the needed nutrients to grow their crops. We could think of nitrogen, magnesium, phosphorus, and things of that sort. With every generation of crops they were growing, they were taking these nutrients out of the ground without replacing them. We have records of crop yields dropping year after year after year. And this was most likely caused by depletion of various minerals in the soil. If that was the case across the Mediterranean, it would make sense that this would have been a major cause in the deterioration of society. Remember that places like Egypt had unrivaled power both militarily and economically. So the fact that people would attack these governments, oof, we're talking internal or external forces, would hint to the fact that they felt that they were now vulnerable in a way that they weren't before. Regardless, something I think we should consider is the fact that the sea people may not have just been faceless enemies, but could have been these desperate people looking for ways to feed their families. Regardless of what actually ended up causing these issues that led to the Bronze Age collapse, whether they be external or internal, the thing that's very important to understand is how unique this particular set of circumstances was. Typically speaking, whenever there's been a war or some kind of natural disaster, societies lick their wounds and start to rebuild. What makes this time period so unique is that this didn't happen. 
Not only were entire cities burned to the ground with no evidence in many cases of what happened, but there was absolutely no effort whatsoever to try to rebuild them. Yeah, you know, that's what's really fascinating about studying this time period because it seemed to really be a collapse of everything. When we think of Western European history and the Mediterranean, we think of the Greeks and the Romans, that classical era of civilization, and that everything before that was some sort of dark age. But like we were talking about with the Ugarit city and civilization, there were prosperous civilizations that suddenly disappeared. And what's even more interesting is that it seems to be isolated to that region. Because at this same time period, we have in other parts of the world thriving civilizations. For example, at this time in China, the Shang dynasty was prominent, and they were having massive developments in civilization and society and technology. So it really seemed that this total collapse was really isolated to this interconnected society around the Mediterranean and in Western Europe. Right, because there was a lot going on in your neck of the woods in China. Well, yeah, your neck <laughs> where you're used to live. <laughs> yeah, just in case you wondered, uh, Jones is not a, uh, a Chinese last name. No. Well, learning about history is something that I firmly believe helps us to understand our own societies today. And what we can do when we encounter similar challenges. Not having an exact answer of what happened during that time during this fall is actually a bit of a blessing in disguise because we can draw parallels to our own day because of some of those vague situations at that time. One of the most important is those of systems collapse. Essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about systems collapse is when a society becomes more and more complex and is able to grow as a result. But that growth and further complexity can make certain issues. For example, let's think about water. People can get water from a stream or a, a spring or a river. But you know what? They find out that this water may not be the cleanest or most dependable source. Plus, you can't get that water unless you're physically close to that stream or river. So what happens? People start digging wells. Well, that's all good and all, but then you have to have people knowing what they're doing because you can't just dig a hole in the ground and just start drinking. So this leads us with people who are professionals that dig wells for a living and who can maintain them. But then you start to have areas getting larger and larger, and they require more water sources that can take on a larger population. But then the water needs to be extra clean because if you don't, you'll have an entire outbreak of infections throughout a large population of people who are drinking it. And then this leads us to people who are out there looking for new sources of water, building ways to transport that water, making sure that water is clean and free of contaminants. Now, this started out as people simply walking to a stream and putting water in their mouth, and now it's turned into a large, complex operation that has many people working from top to bottom to maintain it. Yeah, very true. And um, continuing that example, all of us can agree that having access to clean drinking water is a net positive despite having those costs associated with it and the added complexity to our societies. The problem comes when one or more parts of that chain breaks down and all of a sudden, a large population of people immediately have no source of water. You know, we can think of parallels in our society. For example, there's been a lot of developments with technology and the computerization of a lot of services. Um, I can even remember when processing credit cards they used to still use the carbon copy method if the computers went down. But now, if the computer system goes down, the entire economic system goes to a standstill. Right. 
yeah, we can actually see that sort of thing happen all the time. Or even you could think, you know, uh, Westworks in the, in the technology field, and we could think of uh, when AWS goes down and basically the internet stops just because yep. one company had a little glitch on their server. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, we look at our society and there are many such systems which really are beneficial to society, but we think about how vulnerable society is if just one link in that chain ends up breaking. Right. And that seems to be exactly what happened during the fall of the Bronze Age. People in societies as a whole depended on one another more than ever. If you were a farmer in Egypt, for example, you weren't just growing food for your own family like most people in the world were doing at that time, but rather you would be growing crops that could be going to feeding people in multiple cities throughout the known world. One major difference between our society today and that of the late Bronze Age episode was what we mentioned in the last episode of command economies. Instead of merely having people doing what they want to do for a living and then just selling it at a free market like we do today, the governments were very much involved with telling farmers what they could plant, where, and when, as well as telling the smiths how many swords or pots to make. Just about everything that was produced and consumed in their society was controlled from the top down. This would oftentimes be so controlling, in fact, that farmers would literally wait for government officials to show up to bring them sacks of seed or for manufacturers to wait for their raw materials to show up at their doorsteps. As society appeared to fall from what appeared to be a combination of natural disasters, climate change, as well as the sea people, those government officials stopped showing up, and orders stopped being given. People were now on their own, and given a freedom in a time when freedom was probably the worst thing they could have had. So you might imagine that as militaries started to crumble and were no longer able to protect the people, as food becomes more and more scarce and people become desperate, as direction from governments who for centuries had been micromanaging everything that happened in society now just vanished. What are we left with? Well, given that scenario of scarcity and desperation, most likely rampant violence and crime, as well as disease sweeping the streets. People didn't want to rebuild these fallen cities because there was no reason to rebuild them. The entire system of things that had been in place for so long just vanished. We could even see how defense became more of a concern than trade. I mean, just about all the major great port cities that were along the Mediterranean were completely abandoned within a very short period of time. And where people ended up going were the more defensible areas, like the mountainous regions. Egypt survived because of the vast amount of resources they had to begin with, though it should be mentioned that they really just hung on by a string and were never even a shadow of what they were at any other time in the future. Yeah, and the other survivors of the Bronze Age collapse were the Assyrians. They were known for getting their wealth by being the go-between for people in that trade system. They were also a very violent and cruel society who heavily valued military conquests. A large reason why they survived was because of how far away they were from the Mediterranean, and therefore were probably not affected by the attacks of these sea people at all. They definitely took a big hit from the lack of tin trade, but their military prowess helped them to take over areas that were now being opened up by political and military vacuums. Right. Now, one thing I didn't mention up until this point was that of the ancient Israelites. And the reason for this is pretty complicated because on the one hand, the written word vanished overnight and our records of this time are very limited. In fact, some of the records we have are literally scorched because they barely survived the destruction of the city where they were created. 
One exception to this was that of the ancient Israelites, who made a point to document their history in great detail. Yeah, because this was around the time we believe that the, that the Jewish exodus from Egypt happened, right? And a lot of this talk about climate change and uh, the food system breaking down and disease sounds kind of like some of the 10 plagues. Yeah, here's where things get complicated because there's really no agreement as to when exactly that happened. Some sources say that the Jewish exodus could have been as far back as the 15th century BCE, uh, and some others say that it was probably around the beginning of the 12th century, which was when all this was happening, or any time in between. So that's, again, one of the reasons why it's kind of tricky to really match it, when it when, uh, with all this time period. But I do think it's interesting that we're discovering evidence of major natural disasters at the time, like you mentioned, when these famous acts of God had supposedly happened. Usually scholars say that these natural disasters led to droughts, but I would imagine that hordes of locusts might also affect food chains. The reason I didn't want to bring up this aspect of the story until now was for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, there are obviously plenty of people out there who would object to a religious text being used in a historical setting. After all, this is a historical podcast about food, not religion. Also, there were some accounts that not all historians agree with. That being said, I do want to mention that if anything, the books of the Torah, or as many call it the Old Testament, that deal with this time period are detailed like to a fault. If you were to sit down and actually read these records, uh, so it'd be like Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, these sort of books here, they are so specific that many people consider, consider them mind-numbingly boring. But if you're looking for information as far as genealogy, certain battles, and what was happening around them at the time, the accounts of ancient Israel and the Levant are a great resource that are used by many scholars. It shouldn't be used as the only source of information about this time period, considering its small scope, but it's at least a very good supplement. Frankly, the other reason I didn't want to mention this was because of the fact that at the time, the Israelites were just a small power in the region. And the reason that most people today are interested in them is because of the religious aspect. You know, considering these people led the foundation of what became Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and other uh, groups as well, basically encompassing at least the religious beliefs of more than half the planet today. Yeah, and another thing that's important to mention, a lot of these names that we've heard in the Bronze Age and the early Iron Age, we are familiar with because of possibly a familiarity with the Bible. But it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these groups, for example, the Assyrians, Babylonians, Hittites, names that we find in the Bible, aren't always the same people that we see in the historical records. For example, when we talk about the Hittites in the Torah, we're actually talking about a group known as the Neo-Hittites and are quite a bit different from the Hittites seen battling Egyptians at the height of the Bronze Age. Some of these civilizations rose from the ashes and became quite a bit more powerful than they were even before the collapse, such as those of the Babylonians and the Neo-Babylonians who eventually conquered the nation of Judah. So what do we learn about all this? Is the lesson of the end of the Bronze Age that we shouldn't be interconnected? Well, probably not, because I think that our society is better off for these connections. But that being said, we probably should learn to not be too dependent on one particular product. Petroleum, I'm looking at you. And when it comes to supply chains of basic products like food, having one central source for everyone to purchase from may not work out so well in the long term, especially if the sea people decide to come back. 
If you found this interesting, I highly suggest that you do some of your own research on it because it'll take you down a long rabbit hole with all kinds of topics that would probably take dozens of episodes to explain. If you're looking for recommendations, I would highly recommend the book 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed by Dr. Eric Klein. Wes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, man. It's been a, a pleasure and a privilege. The pleasure and privilege is all ours. And until next time, remember that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. Mm-hmm.